0: Alrighty, so we're going to jump right into a review um, from last week. Last week we started with the prophets, and during the time of the monarchies of Israel and during the captivities of Israel and Judah, God raises up men who will be his mouthpiece, men through which he will deliver his message to his people. This included the major prophets and the minor prophets and those who did not author a book. Like Elijah and Elisha. For the key events for that particular um, stop along our highway of life, I just selected three events that were symbolic of what these prophets did. And the first was Daniel's 70-week prophecy. And if you didn't get one, I do have handouts that summarize that. And uh, Elijah's showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And lastly, Nehemiah's rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. The key relationship here is was justice and judgment. We see this time period in Israel's history marked by God's justice. God is just. He, is, he cannot tolerate sin. He is the impartial judge of sin, and he judges sin. And we see a lot of the consequence of Israel's sin, and these prophets tried to relay that message to bring the nation Israel back to God. From there we went to the silent years, and the silent years was this 400-year time period between the Old and New Testaments when there was no direct revelation from God recorded in Scripture. God was active, but no, nothing was recorded in Scripture that he said or did during this time. I wanted to make one important note that I, I failed to do last week. I just sort of briefly said it, but we didn't really hone in on it, and I wanted to do that tonight before we moved on. And this relates to the temple for Israel in Jerusalem. To, on the slide on your handout that shows the silent years, there's a little note at the bottom on the far left that says Herod renovated or uh, rebuilt or re- refurnished the temple in Jerusalem around 20 BC. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about that, just about the temple in general. So tell me who built the very first temple. For the nation Israel in Jerusalem. Who built that first temple? Solomon. Solomon. Very good. So Solomon completed the very first temple, 953 B.C. That temple stood for just over 350 years. Remember then, the nation, the nation Israel had split in two. There were two distinct kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And when Judah, the southern two most tribes, were captured by Babylon, that temple was destroyed around 586 B.C. So, 953 to about 586, that first temple, temple number one stands, is destroyed by Babylon. Fast forward a little bit of time, Babylon is then taken over by Persia. And eventually, Cyrus allows Israelites to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild what has been destroyed. And led by Ezra, the priest and scribe, the second temple is constructed on this same site. So, temple number two, this temple was completed around 516 BC and stood for 500 years if you if you google second temple of Israel you'll see sometimes the name Zerubbabel and you're like well you didn't talk about him she talked about Ezra Ezra sort of led the the charge but a governor a Jewish governor named Zerubbabel also oversaw the building so sometimes you'll see this listed as Zerubbabel's temple but Ezra was sort of the, the main guy associated so temple number one Solomon Temple number two is Ezra. And then in 20 BC, here comes Herod. Remember we talked last week about four different Herods. The first Herod, Herod the Great, decides, I'm going to add a little bling bling to this second temple. And this needs to be reflective of my personality. And so he undergoes renovations. This was not a tear down and start over. This was an add on and improve Ezra's temple. So still the second temple, but this is the remodel. Now, have you ever had friends who start renovating their house and never really finish? They just kind of finish one project and another one starts. And that's kind of how Herod's renovation was. It started in 20 B.C. Remember, B.C. counts down. Wasn't completed until 63 A.D., like 83 years of renovation. That's a lot of renovation. So 83 years is Herod's sort of remodel and put his stamp on this second temple sadly this temple only stands for seven years seven short years and then is utterly destroyed by Rome so temple number one Solomon temple number two Ezra refurbished by Herod the Great who built the third temple there is no third temple there is no temple in Jerusalem that was a trick question thank you Zeke. there is no temple standing in Jerusalem for Israel today does anyone know the only structure that still remains from the second temple? The wailing wall. That is it. What stands, what sits on the site of these original temples today in Jerusalem.
1: Dome the dome of the
0: rock, this most holy of <coughs> cities for God's people, what sits there in the middle of that city? A mosque built by Israel's arch enemies. There is no temple to the one true God in Israel today. So if you start hearing about somebody building a third temple, something's about to happen. Jesus has either, well, the church may already be gone. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks, but big doings are happening in Israel if there is a third temple right now being constructed in Jerusalem. Anyway, so I just wanted to kind of remind you about the temples. So when you hear about Jews being sad about going to Jerusalem, putting their prayers in corners and cracks in the Wailing Wall, they have no temple to go to. Alrighty, I spent way more time on that than I wanted to. From there, from there, we went to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last prophet, and he basically embodied the message of all the Old Testament prophets that came before him. Key event here was the forerunner of Christ. He, his job, his sole job was to say, get ready, he's on the way. And the key relationship here was the kingdom of heaven is offered to the nation Israel. John the Baptist says to the Jews, Here is this Messiah that you have waited for, longed for, cried for. He's here, he's coming, and he's yours for the taking. Israel's rejection of John the Baptist's message, as evidenced by Herod Antipas, the second Herod, beheading John the Baptist, is a rejection as a nation. I think Diane Jeremko brought out last time, you know, it's not individuals. There were, there were individuals who believed John's message, but as a nation, Israel rejected John the Baptist's message, and in rejecting John the Baptist, rejected the prophets and God the Father's message. Now, one note about the Kingdom of Heaven. You folks are excellent students of God's Word. You know Bible history, you know Bible doctrine, and I can tell when we got to this point last week that some, some faces appeared to be grappling with this whole idea of Jesus coming to earth and actually fulfilling the Davidic covenant, the covenant of David, on his first visit to earth. So I just wanted to say two things about that in particular. One was, was the offer, was John the Baptist's offer to Israel here is the kingdom, it's yours, it's yours for the taking, was that offer sincere? Did God really mean that if Israel had accepted Jesus as their Messiah and king, he could have immediately assumed his rightful place as the throne sitter, the promised throne sitter, on David's throne and begun his reign over the kingdom of Israel right then and there. And from my study of the word and looking at other commentators and a few conversations with your pastor, we have, my conclusion is yes, this, sincere, this was a sincere offer. And had Israel accepted Jesus right then and there, if they had repented, turned to God, and said, we accept this Jesus Christ, he is our king and our messiah, we want to follow him, then Jesus would have assumed the throne, David's throne, and the millennial kingdom would have begun immediately followed by eternity. There, if you think about the the way Jesus' coming was discussed, early on, the focus was his kingship. Herod the Great was not concerned about killing baby boys because he wanted to off an infant Savior, or he wanted to off an infant sacrificial lamb. He wanted to off a baby king. The Magi didn't follow the star. They didn't know about what Jesus planned to do. They were coming to worship this newborn king. Even the nation Israel—if you read passages, there was one that uh, in Luke, the nation Israel, Jesus is talking at parables, and they're like, "Okay, they're waiting for the kingdom to begin." The focus is on Jesus' kingship. Even in prophecy, Isaiah nine, six, and seven, this phrase, this uh, passage, is so. Common, the first phrase we hear every, I think David Brown has one of us say it every single year at Christmas For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. We know that part. Verse 7, we don't always hear. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So prophecy talks about, Isaiah talks about this coming king. And then even in Luke 1, 32 to 33, when Mary is told you are going to have a baby and his name is going to be Jesus, she is told he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Because of Israel's rejection of Jesus on his first trip to earth as Messiah and King, there was a sovereign or divine postponement of this earthly kingdom. It's almost like there's this pause button and now Israel has to wait for Jesus to come assume his rightful place on David's throne until the second time he comes to earth. So, The next question is the what-ifs. This is what I wanted to mention. So that you can what-if yourself to death about this. So my what-ifs are, me personally, what if Israel had repented? What if they had turned to God and accepted Jesus as their Messiah King? What about man's sin problem? What about man's separation from a holy God? And what about our need for an atoning sacrifice? What about Jesus needing to die on the cross? If he's assumed the throne and the millennial kingdom begins, then what about the rest of us? We cannot, as finite human beings, understand the mind of God. We have, I, we have no ability to comprehend his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his sovereignty. God knew, even though this was a legitimate offer of the kingdom of heaven to the nation Israel by John the Baptist and then Jesus, God the Father knew that his people would reject his son and his son's forerunner. God knew that Christ's earthly reign on David's throne would not begin on his first trip to earth, but his second trip to earth. God knew that his son had to die. I love this. He had to die on the cross to make atonement for sin once and for all and shift the focus from a kingdom just for the Jews to salvation for all by faith through grace. And it's not like God was like, oops, Israel kind of messed that up. What am I going to do now? God's word tells us that this was ordained before the very foundations of the world were laid. This was God's plan for his son. So yes, it was still a legitimate offer to Israel. Here is the kingdom. They could have said yes. But God in his sovereignty, in his omniscience, his foreknowledge, he knew they would say no. Now, if anybody can, like, sit down and thoroughly explain that to me, that would be great. But it's hard for us to grapple with that. But I do believe that this was a sincere offer, but God knew the outcome. Does that make sense? I'll leave further study about that to you. One last note. It is because Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah and King that we are sitting here today at 905, well, this is a different address, but whatever, 905 Chapel Road. It's because of Israel's rejection that we were offered the gospel. So while we like to kind of get mad at the Jews for crucifying the Lord, it's because they rejected him that the gospel was then offered to Gentiles. So that's like a Ross Marian introduction right there. Don't tell him I said that. So now we're going to move on to our new stuff for tonight. Um, Sorry, did I say that out loud? I thought I just thought that. Um, Oh, yeah, great. Now he can listen to it over and over again. So our new content for tonight, we move on to the person of Jesus Christ. And as much as I love talking about the Lord, I almost hesitate to make Jesus... Just number 20 on my little highway of life. You know, I certainly don't want to imply that he's just another number of individuals that we're going to encounter along the way. Certainly I would propose that he's the most important individual that we encounter along the way. Finally, after centuries of waiting, this promised Messiah arrives. The fulfillment of God's promise way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 is finally here. Who asked Genesis 3? I think we've read this passage at least four times. Genesis 3,
2: 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the lives of God, and all the wild animals. You will call on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put you between you and the corn, and between your offspring and hers. You will crush
0: your head and you will strike his heel thank you, this promised seed of woman, this is the the offspring of that woman Eve that will eventually deal a death blow to sin and death and destroy Satan's grip on this earth forever. So how do we know that Jesus was really the Messiah? Well, if you believe scripture, then there are a lot of reasons, but I would propose three reasons why we can trust that Jesus truly was the Messiah. The first is that Jesus alone fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies, all the prophecies in the Old Testament that had to do with a coming Messiah. Some expositors say there were 300, some say closer to 350. We're going to say 300 plus. Some some argue that some of these passages overlap and it's not really distinct. But anyway, 300 distinct Messianic prophecies. How, How could Jesus have done this? How could one person have done this? And is that really a big deal? Yes, it's a big deal. So in my preparation for this study last year, I had not found this before then, I found this awesome little article about a book that was written back in the 1950s. And the article is called The Odds of Eight Messianic Prophecies Coming True. So here's the deal. In 1957, Moody Press published a book by a professor, Peter W. Stoner, S-T-O-N-E-R. And the title of this book was Science Speaks, An Evaluation of Certain Christian Evidences. And so Mr. Stoner, on page 71 of his book, says, I'm going to employ the very well-known idea of probabilities. And this well-known idea of probabilities is that if the chances or the odds of something happening are 1 in M, the letter M, and the probability or the odds of something totally different, unrelated, happening are 1 in n, then the probability of both of these things happening at the same time is 1 in m times n. Makes sense? So his example was if 1 in 10 men, you to see if this is good odds, if 1 in 10 men are bald and 1 in 100 men have lost one of their 10 fingers, then the odds of a man being involved and having lost a finger is one in a thousand, 10 times a 100, so that makes sense. Okay, basic principle of probabilities. I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy lost a finger, well we got some, of, oh there you go. We got quite a few bald guys. Anyway, um, anyway, so stoner, Carl's are one in a thousand. No, um, <laughs> so, we always knew you were one in a thousand, Carl. So, um, he says, there is no way we can grapple with these 300 plus prophecies. Mr. Stoner said, I'm going to look at eight of them. I'm going to pick eight prophecies and figure out the probability of one individual fulfilling all eight. Okay? So, you're with me so far? So, I'm going to run through these eight lightning fast. I'm just going to give you the reference, really. The first is Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2, I practiced the pronunciation of this second word, and I know I'm going to botch it up as I say it out loud. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel. Y'all know this prophecy, we hear this said a lot in, around Christmas time, the idea that Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. That's number one. Number two, Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3, one. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Uh, the Messiah... We'll have a forerunner. i the a pattern here because you can think, all right, well, that's John the Baptist. Number three, um, Zechariah, that's Zechariah with an E, or you can just abbreviate Z-E-C-H, 9-9, nine, nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh, lowly and riding upon the cult of the fall of a donkey. The idea that the Messiah would have a triumphal entry come in and enter in riding on a donkey. That's number three. Number four. And one shall say, oh, sorry, Zechariah 13, 6. Same book, Zechariah, there's a couple from Zechariah. Zechariah 13, 6. What are these wounds in thy hands? And he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. The Messiah will have wounds on his hands, and those wounds will will come about as a betrayal from a friend. Okay, so Judas, Jesus has wounds on his hands. Y'all get the idea. Number five. Uh, this is Zechariah eleven twelve, 12. And he said to them, If you think good, give me my price. Uh, so they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's what um, Judas was paid to betray Jesus. Number six. This is Zechariah eleven thirteen. I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. The idea that the money, this 30 pieces of silver, would be returned but then cast down, cast away. The, the chief priest could not take that money back that Judas returned because it was tainted, it was ill-gotten gain, so they bought a potter's field with it. Okay. Two more. Uh, Isaiah 53, 7, very familiar passage. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So the idea that the Messiah would be accused... He would have accusers, but he would, not, he would not defend himself. He would not open his mouth. Jesus did not defend himself when he was on trial. And number eight, Psalm twenty-two sixteen. 16. I love this one. So here's David talking, and he says, They pierced my hands and feet. When David wrote this psalm, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. That was a Roman form of execution. But the Messiah will have wounds in his hands and his feet. Okay, so there's all eight. So Mr. Stoner takes the probabilities. Oh, and these probabilities were determined by a group of Christian kids on a research study uh, funded by InterVarsity Christian, Pre- uh, Christian uh, Fellowship. And so you have basically classroom bulls at a Christian university of Christian like Bible school students coming up, cranking out the statistics to come up with the odds of each of these individual eight prophecies being fulfilled, okay? So we multiply all those probabilities together they factored in the population of the U.S., or not U.S., of the world from the time these prophecies were made until the time the book was written, 1957, so probably in the early 1950s, and they come up with the number, okay? So the probability of one individual fulfilling just eight of the 300-plus prophecies is one, I remember how to write probabilities, write one in, like the word in, I-N, 10 to the 17th power. That's the magic number, One in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I was a decent math student, but I have no concept of what that looks like. So, we're going to have a, there's a little illustration that Mr. Stoner presents. Now, he talks about coins. I'm going to make it a little more fun. So, to put this into a visual, we're going to pretend that Mr. Curtis back here loves Girl Scout thin mint cookies. He's obsessed, I don't know if he likes them or not. He's obsessed with Girl Scout thin mint cookies, and we, we just love Curtis so much that we decide we're going to make a treat for him. And so all of us pack up in a car. We drive to the state of Texas. We go see Sarah and Taylor. And we (coughs) clear out the state of Texas, and we dump Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies two feet deep over the entire area of the state of Texas, not perimeter, as my daughter is learning, area. So everywhere you step in the state of Texas, two feet deep in Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. Okay, you with me? But just to make it interesting, uh, Mr. Carl pulls out his pocket knife, and we take one of those cookies, and we kind of carve an X into the chocolate, okay? So one of those cookies has an X in it. And then we blindfold Mr. Curtis, spin him around, and we chuck that cookie out somewhere in the middle of the state of Texas. And we spin Mr. Curtis around, and we take his blindfold off, and we say, okay, Mr. Curtis, you got one chance to bend down. In these two feet deep cookies all over the entire state of Texas and pick up the cookie that we gashed with the X. That is the probability of one individual, the chances of him picking that right cookie. That's the probability of one individual in history fulfilling eight of the 300 prophecies. I just think that's amazing. So my little finite, tiny, poor, tired brain can't even comprehend what it would be for 30 plus... Messianic prophecy. The fact that Jesus fulfilled those is a miracle. Does that make sense? Okay, all that from my first little point. Why do we know Jesus is the Messiah? And I, Do you like thin mint cookie skirt? I oh, don't like not. You know if you like or not. He's like, I don't like him. Should we do Samoas instead?
2: You
1: say Mister
2: one more time, I'll be Oh, man.
1: I'm getting no respect
0: around here. Okay, so Jesus was the Messiah. Number one, he alone fulfilled three hundred plus prophecies. Number two, he claimed to be God. There are some people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. In I'll run through these quickly. In John ten thirty. John ten thirty he says, I the Father and I are one. I don't know how much clearer you can get than that. The Father and I are one. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who else said, I am? Who else called themselves, I am? Jesus. When? When did God the Father call himself, I am? When he When he was talking to Moses, when he said, Moses said, I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. How? Who do I tell him is, 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 is talking? I am. That's what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then in John 14, 7 to 15, One line out of that passage says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus claimed to be God, incarnate. Number three, Jesus was given the stamp of approval by the Holy Spirit and by God the Father at his baptism. My dad just mentioned it in the baptismal service on Sunday when John the Baptist baptized Jesus after he came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, lights on his shoulder, and the voice of God the Father is heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So he had all three members of the Trinity right then and there, the Holy Spirit and God the Father saying, this is the one people, pay attention. So that is, why, that is what I would assert to you, ways that we know that Jesus was the Messiah. However, the Jews did not want a king, really. They didn't want a kingdom. They didn't want the kingdom of heaven. They didn't want a messiah. They just wanted someone to overthrow Rome. That's all they really wanted. And that's not what Jesus was planning to do. So key events here. Three very quickly summarized. One little note on your notes. Take this section right here, this little checkbox, and draw a line under the B. That should be under B, not under A. Um, I noticed that as I was going through this. But the first is incarnation. We've talked a couple of times in our study about the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. An appearance of Christ Jesus when he talked to Hagar, when he, when he wrestled with Jacob. Jesus coming to earth before his car- incarnation. This is the incarnation. This is Jesus in human flesh. 100% God, 100% man, God with us. I mean, Emmanuel is here. So, the incarnation number two, virgin birth. Jesus is born of a virgin mother, Mary. She conceives Jesus through the Holy Spirit, not through Joseph. Jesus did not have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father, but not an earthly father. Only an earthly mother. And this fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah, the most popular, well-known one being Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child, and she will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. So incarnation, virgin birth, and then number three, miracles. Miracles in Jesus' earthly ministry that started with turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, all the way through to his resurrection from the dead after three days. So full of miracles. The key relationship here is this. Israel rejects Jesus as Savior and King. He was offered by John the Baptist Summarizing the message of the prophets, and they rejected John the Baptist, and now they are rejecting the one who has come, the Messiah, the promised one. Again, Israel just wanted someone to overthrow Rome. They were just tired of being oppressed by Rome. Who led the charge to take Jesus' life? Was it the sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves, beggars, or pagans? Nope. It was the chief priests the elders of the people, and the high priest, Caiaphas, the high priest of God's chosen people is the one leading the charge to take Jesus' life. Who has um, Luke 23,
1: 13 to 23? And Paul and he had called together the chief priest and the rulers of the people said unto them, ye have brought this man to be as one that perverteth the people and behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accused <coughs> him. No, not yet, Sarah, for I set you to him, and, lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for of necessity he must release one who unto them at that feast, and they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city, and for murder, was cast into prison. <coughs> the Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto them the third time, While what evil hath he done I have found no cause of death in him I will therefore chastise him and let him go and they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified and the forces of them and of the priests prevailed thank you she preached
0: so before Pilate before Herod no real fault can be found in this man. And several times Pilate says to the nation Israel, to the Israelites, to the leaders of God's chosen people, let me just let me just give him a slap on the hand and call it done. Let me let me just, you know, give him a good punishment and send him on his way. No, they would rather set a murderer free than to let Jesus than to spare Jesus' life. So you have Herod and Pilate clearly not followers of the one true God they can't find fault they are not in a hurry to put Jesus to death but the spiritual leaders of Israel say crucify him crucify him and that is what happens as we know so Israel has now rejected Jesus God the son previously rejecting God the father by killing John the ba- uh, John the Baptist and now rejecting God the son in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ The second key relationship, that was a not-so-pleasant note, on an up note, is salvation is offered. Way back in Eden, since Adam and Eve first sinned, the world has been waiting, waiting for a way to get to a holy God. We've been separated because of our sin nature from the one true God, and we've been waiting for someone who could bridge that gap. Christ taking our sins to the cross and dying in our place provided us a way to have access to God, who, has Matthew twenty-seven forty-five to
1: fifty-one, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land
2: to the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out, saying, "Eli, Eli, That
1: is to say, "My God, my God, I have thou forsaken me." Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, that said. This man called to Elias. Straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it thin and put it on reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let thee, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the belt of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth gave quake and the rocks met. Thank you.
0: So the Jews around. Elias, uh, Ms. Orling's translation is translated Elijah. They think he's calling for Elijah. They're they're confused. They, They have no idea what's really happening, obviously. He cries out with a loud voice. He gives up. He yields his spirit. I love that. Nobody took God's spirit, God the Son's spirit from him. He yielded it. He could have, with a blink of an eye, come off that cross and annihilated everyone standing there. But he yielded up his spirit what is the significance of the torn veil is it you know we hear that oh when jesus was crucified when he died the temple the veil in the temple was torn in two Mm, that's nice Um, what was the what was the significance of this when solomon built the temple the veil was roughly 30 cubits high okay 30 cubits when herod did his expansion of Ezra's temple, he expanded that to about 40 cubits. Now no one knows exactly how long a cubit was, but generally it was thought to be the length of a man's forearm, so elbow to fingertips. So we can safely assume that this uh, veil was approximately 60 feet high. The first century Jewish historian Josephus also tells us that the veil was four inches thick, 60 feet high, Four inches thick and Josephus also tells us that two horses tied end to end could not pull the veil apart. This was not some sheer little Muslim curtain hanging there and it got a little tear in it and kind of ran. This was a miracle. Thick heavy fabric at the exact moment that Jesus gave up his spirit tears into from top to bottom. Nobody could have done it from bottom to top. What does that mean? What, what, what is the significance of that? This, this, that you're exactly right, Miss Kitty, this veil separated common man, men and, well, priests too, but men, women, boys, and girls could not approach holy God because he was separated in the holy of holies by this veil. This rending of the veil symbolized that by accepting Christ's atoning work on the cross, men, women, boys, and, and girls have complete access to the throne of God. Through Jesus shed blood not through the sacrifice of bulls and goats like we've studied but through Jesus own shed blood so that temple veil being torn in two from top to bottom was hugely significant we're gonna keep moving just to Stephen Stephen I'm gonna just keep going there's one part of Stephen that always takes a little bit longer but I'm still gonna let you out of here by 8 o'clock Stephen is probably one of my favorite Bible characters, and probably, other than our Lord, probably my favorite New Testament character because of the way every time he's mentioned in Scripture, it is an amazing description of this man. Obviously not perfect, but just an amazing follower of Jesus Christ. So here's what's happened. Jesus has been crucified, uh, buried three days later, rose from the grave, appears to people, to his disciples, appears to others, sticks around for approximately 40 days, ascends into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he has now secured his position as the head of the church. His body is now made up of those who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit, we're going to talk more about that next week. I know that Peter technically kind of came before Stephen. But I moved him next because Stephen, as we're going to learn in just a minute, his ministry was cut short. Peter's was much longer, and so that's why I kind of reversed. So we're going to talk more about the Day of Pentecost next week. But um, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts two was the birth of the church. So we now have the. So now it's not just Israel and the kingdom, and it's not all about God's chosen people, the nation Israel. Now the focus kind of shifts to the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church is experiencing rapid growth, also lots of persecution by Jews who rejected Jesus and thereby reject Jesus' followers. So everybody with me? So the early church is growing and people are becoming saved, realizing after the fact, after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, hey, that really was the Messiah coming to Christ and the Jews as a whole can't stand it, okay? So many people think that Stephen was an apostle. He was not an apostle. What was he? Anybody know? He was a deacon, that's right. Who has Acts 6, 1 to 7? I do. In those days, when the
2: number of disciples was increasing. The grecian Jews among them complained against the correct Jews <coughs> because their leaders were being overlooked in the day of distribution of food. To the twelve, gathered all the disciples together to see. It will not be right for us to neglect the and ministry of the word of God in order to wait lay For let's choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to the prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal will please the whole group, a trustee, a man full of faith and all of the holy spirit. Also, Philip, Purus, I can time, time.
1: Oh, no, oh, <laughs> and sorry. Parmenius
2: and convert to Judaism. They represented these men they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. For the word of God's spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to, to the faith.
0: Thank you. Sorry about all the names. The very first, when these when the apostles say we can't be dealing with the day to day running of the church and the serving of these widows, we need to be preaching the word. We need to be we need to be preaching the word. So let's find some, you know, faithful, godly men who can take care of this for us so we can focus on God's Word and spreading the gospel. And the first one that they thought of or that they came up with as a good idea to be one of these deacons was Stephen, and he's described as full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. So we meet Stephen. The key event here is that Stephen was ordained by God to be the very first martyr of the early Christian church, who has Acts six, eight to
2: fifteen. Okay. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from Members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene, and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Silicon and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen. They could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom those handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an man.
0: Thank you. I love that. This fellow won't stop. This fellow won't shut up about Jesus. So here is the scene. Stephen, full of God's grace, full of power. He's preaching the word without compromise. He is uh, given the power to perform signs and wonders to validate his message that is truly from God. And the people listening can't stand it. They can't argue with him. They can't um, win an argument with him. And he's driving them nuts, frankly. So they basically hire some men to be false witnesses. He's dragged before the Sanhedrin. These same witnesses say, oh, yeah, he's like, he's talking terrible about the temple and Moses. And we got to do something about this. And so basically Stephen is dragged before the Sanhedrin and put on trial for false claims of speaking against Moses and the temple and the law. Now, catch the irony of what is about to happen. Stephen, before the Sanhedrin, is about to preach a sermon, and he is going to specifically quote Moses a billion times verbatim what Moses has written in the first five books of the Old Testament. The man that they say, he's trying to destroy the law, and he, he doesn't have any respect for Moses. He knows Moses by heart. So, I'm getting ready to... This is why I paused a minute ago when I was trying to decide if I should go on with Stephen. I'm getting ready to do something which is probably public speaking suicide. And that is to annotate... I'm not going to read, but annotate 53 verses or 54 verses. If you have a Bible or an iPad, whatever, look up Acts 7, 1 to 53. And I know everyone's translation is going to be a little different. This, to me, is probably one of the greatest sermons recorded in Scripture because... This is the power of God's Word, memorized, known inside and out. This is why Stephen was a man of such power and wisdom, because he knew God's Word. Okay, so Acts 7, 1 to 53. Again, I promise I will not read this entire thing. But it is amazing, and it's also a great review for 80% of what we've already done. So, here's the scene. The high priest says to Stephen, "Are Are these things so? And he says, Stephen says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. He starts back with Abraham. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living, meaning Israel, Canaan, Palestine. And then it goes on. I'm going to skip a little bit. And then it says he promised that he would, this is God promising to Abraham, that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, But God spoke to this effect and that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. That is a direct quote that we read in this class, God speaking to Moses. Uh, or excuse me God speaking to Abraham way before Moses saying oh by the way Abraham I'm giving you this land and a nation and a blessing and at one point your people are going to be enslaved for 400 years by some other people so he quotes this exactly okay keep going um, he gave to him meaning Abraham the covenant of circumcision and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and he circumcised him on the eighth day that's some detail and Isaac became the father of Jacob and the Jacob of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes, sons, later tribes, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him to, into Egypt. Yet God was with him, and then it goes on, and then it says, he granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and but when Jacob, still back in in. Palestine in Israel heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent our fathers there for the first time. He talks about how Joseph's brothers came a <coughs> first time, and then they came a second time. And then eventually, Jacob and his father and all his relatives came to him, 75 persons in all. Stephen knows how many there were in the family of Jacob that originally settled in Egypt. I would say this man has done some reading. Jacob went down to Egypt, and there and there he and our fathers died. And then he even talks about how, remember, we said when Jacob went down to Egypt, he said, I'll go down and I'll stay there, but I don't want to be buried there. I want to be buried with my forefathers. So Stephen quotes, From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And then he moves on, but as the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, meaning the Abrahamic covenant is now coming to fruition. Abraham has descendants. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Direct quote from the Old Testament. And then it says, at this time Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. Stephen knows that Moses, when he was put in the basket, rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, but able to be nursed by his own mother, Jochebed, for three months. And it goes on. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and then it goes on. I'm skipping a good number of verses. At this remark, this is when uh, he talks about when Moses struck down, cut off, or killed the uh, Egyptian taskmaster, and fled to Midian. Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. And so he talks about how Moses was called by God to be the deliverer. He uh, skipped forward a little bit. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. I think Stephen's getting a little tired here now because now he starts summarizing a little bit. Before it was lots of detail. Now he's kind of skipping ahead a little bit. And oh, and I love this. We just talked about this last week. He says, this is Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. And moving ahead, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, meaning Moses, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us a God, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. This is when Moses was up on Mount Sinai for too long, according to the Jews, to get the law and they were downstairs, I mean they were downstairs, they were down below the mountain throwing their metal into the fire. Remember Aaron says, oh look, a calf came out. Moving on. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. And then it keeps going. Our fathers, oh, then it talks about our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. He talks about how Moses and the nation Israel had a tabernacle, a place to worship in the wilderness. We're getting close to the end. He goes straight for Moses to David okay again skipping some time here and he talks about the conquest of Canaan almost done he says just as he who spoke to Moses directed dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers that that's taken over Canaan when they were brought back to the promised land led by Joshua until the time of David he goes from Joshua to we kind of skipped over the period of Judges and Saul and straight to David David found favor in the sight in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built the house for God. Direct quote. And then he goes on, and he, this is the clincher. So he kind of stops his history lesson, and he stops there, and he says to his audience, who's already, I'm sure, fuming by now, they've just been schooled in Jewish history, starting with their father, Abraham, and going all the way to David, who they revered. He says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Yeah, that was a good way to end that sermon. He doesn't mince words, he doesn't apologize, he doesn't bow he's a kowtow or back down. He knows he's done, and so he's like, I'm gonna let it rip. So who has Acts seven fifty-four? This is the tragic in some ways response to this. Acts Acts seven fifty-four to sixty, who's got that? When they heard these things, they were
1: enraged in their hearts and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, filled by the Holy Spirit, gazed into him. He saw God's glory with Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said,
2: Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed
0: against him. They threw him out of the sea and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their
1: robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. They were stoning Stephen as he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, did not charge them with this sin and say this. Yes,
0: Thank you. So they are seething at the end of this sermon. They can't stand what he has just said to them. But being full of the Holy Spirit, you know, it's kind of like what happens next. Being full of the Holy Spirit in the middle of this Sanhedrin, Stephen looks up and says, hey, Look at that. I see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he tells them what he sees. He sees it, and then he tells them. They go ballistic. It almost reminds me of, it's almost like when the demons couldn't stand to, hear, to see Jesus or, or hear anything about Jesus, screaming, covering the ears, gnashing of teeth. They drag him out. And the witnesses and those who are about to do the stoning lay their robes before whom? Saul, which we'll learn about more next week. He later becomes Paul. He was not defending Stephen. He was part of the crowd. And as he is being stoned, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. Who does that remind you of? Those words. Jesus, so similar to this man, so loved the Lord. He had the same very similar words as his dying words, as his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And with this, he he fell asleep. He gave up his spirit. So, the key relationship here is Israel's rejection of God the Holy Spirit. Israel rejected God the Father by their rejection of John the Baptist. Israel rejected God the Son when they crucified Jesus. And now in the stoning of Stephen, this first martyr of the early church, they have rejected God the Holy Spirit. Israel as a nation has now effectively rejected the entire Trinity. We don't want God the Father's message. We certainly don't want Jesus as the Messiah and we don't really care about the ministry of this Holy Spirit guy. So now, starting next week, we will see the tide turn away from Israel to offering the gospel message to Jews and Gentiles. Woo! I made it, straight up, eight o'clock. Thank y'all, whew, exhausted. Thank you for your attention.